Well, let's open our Bibles tonight once again to the book of Romans tonight to begin with. I will be very honest. There are some passages of Scripture that, humanly speaking, I would rather not have to preach or even talk about. And part of the reason why I try to be methodical in my preaching uh, and in expository preaching, following a lot of times books and just going through them beginning to end, part of the reason I do that is to overcome the temptation of skipping stuff. Because if I'm going through a book, you know if I skip something. He didn't cover that. And... Um, we know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. But not all Scripture is easy. And in just a little bit, we're going to be looking at one of the most difficult chapters of Scripture. And honestly, I had planned to preach on this chapter this morning and uh, felt felt led of the Lord to, to go ahead and deal with it on, in the evening service. But we're actually going to spend probably more time in Romans chapter 1 tonight than we are in Judges chapter 19. Because as I was studying for it and I was just wrestling with the, the nature of, of what is discussed in Judges chapter 19, considering how to teach it, how to handle it carefully and appropriately, the Lord really impressed upon me how that it was a very graphic illustration of a New Testament passage that we're going to read to begin with in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, we read in verse number 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves 
that recompense of their error, which was meat. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're going to be dealing with some very tough passages of Scripture tonight, and we need your help more so probably than at other times just because of the nature of it. Lord, we recognize that we are always dependent on you to properly understand and apply your word. So, Lord, we ask for your help tonight that it would give us a better understanding really of what we're seeing in our world today and what our response to it should be. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God created man to worship. Originally, man was created to worship God. And in everyone's heart, there is an inseparable desire to worship. Man will always be worshiping something. Even the atheist, even the agnostic, even the God-hater who says, I don't worship anything, I don't believe in any supernatural, I don't believe in God, even that person is actually worshiping something. And really what it comes down to is whether or not you're worshiping selfishly or you're worshiping God as you should. Because if you're not worshiping God, you're either worshiping yourself or you're worshiping something else for the benefit of self. And why do I bring this up? Because really, the story we're going to read in Judges in just a minute has everything to do with a departure from the worship of the true God. Because Israel had stopped worshiping God properly and begun to worship idols instead, they went down a path that ended in the worst kind of wickedness and debauchery. Now, we've begun here in Romans chapter 1 because this New Testament passage really lays out for us the process of how man can go so far into evil and into sin and into wickedness. Have you ever looked at things going on in our culture today and just kind of shaken your head and thought, how in the world have we gotten to this point? How have we gotten to the point where people are literally parading through the streets of America, promoting all kinds of abominations in the presence of small children, no less? Now, I remember when I was a teenager, I mean, pride festivals and pride parades and things like that were happening, but never to the level that we see it happening now that I was aware of. Now there's no shame at all. There's no attempt to hide the wickedness. How did we get to the point where we are no longer a culture of life? We are a culture of death. All right, the push for abortion, that's a culture of death. Increasingly, the, pu the push for euthanasia, that's a culture of death. The mass shootings that we see, the crime and the violence that goes on in our country, that's all a part of a culture of death. For generations now, we have glorified death and we've been entertained by death and we've found, found that to be something that, as a, as a nation, we're willing to pay for it. 
How did we get to this point? How have we come so far away from God? Romans chapter 1 explains how that happens. It goes back to verse number 19. When when the Apostle Paul makes a statement that God has shown some truths about himself to everyone. Everyone on the planet has received at least some revelation about God through creation. Verse 20 explains it. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and His Godhead. So at the very least, even someone who has never heard the name of Christ, never seen a Bible, never been to church, has never known anything about God as we do from the Word of God, they can at the very least look at creation and know two things. That there is a God and that He's much bigger than we are. Now, the logical conclusion of that then is that because there's a God and because He's bigger than I am, I should worship Him. I should give Him the best of my time and my energy and my devotion. He deserves what I have to offer. As little as it may be, He deserves my worship. That is the logical conclusion. However, our flesh, our sinful flesh, does not operate logically. Instead, people look at creation or even further when they are given the revelation of God through the pages of Scripture and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They hear these things and they know them to be true, but they reject the truth. Because verse 21 says that when they knew God, it's not a question of whether or not they knew it. They knew God, but they glorified Him not as God. They made a choice. Not to give God the glory that He deserves, but instead they became vain in their imaginations. Their foolish heart was darkened. And verse 23 talks about the idolatry that results of this choice to reject God. They changed the image of God into an uh, image made like to corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts. And man makes all kinds of idols, any kind of idol, whatever idol in order to take God's proper place. Someone has said that our hearts are an idol factory. Not I-D-L-E, like as in sitting still, but I-D-O-L, as in idols, as in making a lot of idols. It's amazing the things that people will worship. Now we, we, we think about idols and we obviously, we think of the little statues and those monuments and the altars that people in those other countries go when they worship there. I, I, am, I am absolutely convinced that America is just as idolatrous as any nation on the planet. Only we're more sophisticated about it, you might say. Because we go out and we wash our idols and we polish them and we put little, uh, 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 those little trees that smell good hanging up in the on the interiors of them every week. Or, or we, we will uh, organize our idols into colors, you know, hanging on the hangers in our closet. Or, or we, will, uh, uh, we will give the best of our time to our idol when we clock in and clock out every single day. And, and, or, or when we're online and we give, we give our devotion to certain people uh, that we follow and, and they, just, they get the best of our time and, and all of our attention and we give them our influence. We have all of these very sophisticated idols, but they're idols nonetheless. And it, it is leading in the same direction as Judges 19 and Romans chapter 1. 
It's leading in the same direction. We are seeing today in our culture the results of generations now of people rejecting the true God and worshiping idols instead. And so that's why verse 26, we, we, we continue on and see that what is the digression here when someone rejects God and worships an idol? Verse 26, for this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. To me, that is one of the scariest statements in Scripture. When God will give someone up to their vile affections. Or as in verse 28, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, so God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Notice what's happening here. The Apostle Paul's laying out for us the digression. So people choose to turn from God and they begin to worship idols. They begin going down this path. And for a time, God will exert a restraining influence, refusing to allow them to go any farther as He continues to work in their life to bring them to a point of repentance. But after so much rebellion, there can come a point where God no longer restrains them. And as a consequence of their own choices and as punishment for their sin, God simply gives them over. God simply says, okay, this is the path you have chosen. I'm going to let you take this path and you will learn how bad it is. God gives them over. God gives them up to a reprobate mind. And the result of that is what we read in verses 26 and 27. I'm not going to reread it right now, but many of you understand what these verses are referring to. It's what we're seeing being pushed in our culture today. When you can walk through Walmart, and at the front of Walmart, in, in front of all the checkouts, there's a large candy display of Skittles that is just blasted with slogans like, Happy to Glad to Show Our Pride. I mean, candy is being used to push these agendas. I believe we have to conclude that there is a large portion of our population that has fallen into Romans chapter 1. God has given them over to a reprobate mind. God has given them up to work uncleanness through their own lusts and dishonor their own bodies between themselves. But see, the problem is not politics. It's not because we voted for the wrong people. That's not the problem. The problem is that people have chosen to worship anything but God. And when you choose to worship anything but the true God, it takes you down a path that ultimately leads to this kind of wickedness. Look at verse 29 here. Here we have a list of all kinds of unrighteousness that result when someone rejects the true God to worship an idol. 
being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. It results in a culture that glorifies what God says is a horrible abomination. And in many ways, that is the culture in which we live today. If true revival were to come to America, and by that I mean if, if the majority of the people in America were to repent and turn to God and get right with God, you would have whole industries in our nation that would shut down. I'll be honest with you, it would be an economic wreck to our nation if true revival happened. The liquor industry would probably go under. Uh, the entertainment industry, music, movies, and those kinds of things uh, would probably go under. And, and we could go right down the list of so many uh, industries in our economy that are dependent on unrighteous people indulging their unrighteous desires. We pray for revival, but have you ever thought about what that would really look like? The path back to righteousness is going to be rocky, but it's worth it. Because if we don't take that path, and if we keep going down the path we're on, we're going to end up in Judges chapter 19. Now before we look there, I, I want to acknowledge, I understand this is pretty grim. What we're, what we're talking about tonight. And I'm being very careful. I want to be as careful as I can handling Scripture and knowing the audience tonight. We're not going to dwell on things unnecessarily. But I don't want you to leave discouraged. The point of this message is not to walk out of here and thinking, we're hopeless, we're done, we're doomed. This is it. No, 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 no. I, I, that's, that should not be our thinking. Our thinking should be, there's an answer to this problem. There's a solution, and it's called the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't believe we've ever lived in our country in a darker time. But you know what that means? That means the opportunity to shine brightly has never been greater. That means that you and I have more of a chance right now to make a difference for Christ than we ever have. With fewer and fewer people believing God's word and trusting in Jesus Christ, we have more and more opportunities to make a difference, to make an impact. And what we must do is not allow ourselves to be swept up in the godless culture. We must not allow ourselves to become guilty of idolatry in our own hearts. We have to make sure that we are worshiping God and Him alone. That He is the only one Who's calling the shots in our life? No other person, no other plan, no other program, no other pleasure. Nothing can be calling the shots in our life other than God Himself. And we must be sure that we're giving Him our absolute best of time and energy and devotion. That our whole lives are wrapped up in serving God no matter what we're doing. Whether we're going to work, whether we're working around the house, whether we're talking to a neighbor. That everything about our life is seen as an act of worship to the God who deserves our very best. There is hope through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not yet in a hopeless situation. See, some people think from Romans chapter 1 that once a society gets to this point in any degree, that's it. We're done. 
I don't believe that. Because I look in Scripture and I see people who were caught up in these kinds of sins that God miraculously and wonderfully redeemed from those sins. Let me just give you one example. Does the name Rahab ring a bell? In Joshua chapter 2, Rahab was as deep into the things of Romans chapter 1 as anybody could ever be. She was guilty of worshiping idols and in, it was her job to participate in immoral worship of idols. She was deep into it, but God saved her out of it. What I'm saying to you is that just because we see people who are doing what they're doing in defiance of God, that does not mean that we are yet hopeless. There is always hope in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now with that in mind, let's turn to Judges chapter 19. This story in the book of Judges is perhaps one of the most difficult to read when we get to the later portions of it of what happened. To be honest, there may be some verses that I just passed over tonight, and that's for the sake of our younger people in here. But I want us to begin just with verse number one, seeing what what happened in the nation of Israel during the time of Judges, when every man did that which was right in his own eyes, meaning they didn't worship the true God, they worshiped false gods as they saw fit. And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite sojourning on the side of Mount Ephraim who took to him a concubine out of Bethlehem, Judah. We're introduced to this man who is not named in Scripture, but we are told that he was a Levite. It is important to note that as a Levite, he was a member of a tribe whose responsibility it was to lead the people in the worship of God and to teach people the truth of God's Word. That was a privilege and a responsibility given to the tribe of Levi as a whole. And this particular man, the Bible says, took him a concubine out of Bethlehem, Judah. And his concubine, verse number 2, played the whore against him and went away from him unto her father's house, to Bethlehem, Judah, and was there four whole months. And her husband arose and went after her to speak friendly to her, to bring her again, having a servant with him and a couple of asses. And she brought him to her father's house. And when the father of the damsel saw him, he rejoiced to meet him. And his father-in-law, the damsel's father, retained him, and he abode with him three days. So they did eat and drink and lodged there. And it came to pass on the fourth day when they were arose when they arose early in the morning, that he rose up to depart, and the damsel's father said unto his son-in-law, Comfort thine heart with a morsel of bread, and afterward go your way. And they sat down and did eat and drink, both of them together. For the damsel's father had said unto the man, Be content, I pray thee, and tarry all night, and let thine heart be merry. And when the man arose up to depart, his father-in-law urged him, therefore he lodged there again. And he arose early on the morning of the fifth day to depart, and the damsel's father said, Comfort thine heart, I pray thee, and they tarried until afternoon, and they did both eat both of them. And when the man rose up to depart, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the damsel's father, said unto him, Behold now, the day draweth toward evening. I pray you, tarry all night. Behold, the day groweth to an end. Lodge here, that thine heart may be merry. And tomorrow get you early on your way, that thou mayest go home. 
But the man would not tarry that night, but he rose up and departed and came over against Jebus, which is Jerusalem. And there were with him two asses saddled. His concubine also was with him. As we begin this story here tonight, we have the main characters, which is the Levite and his wife, or as she's called in this story, a concubine. And we have her father, the Levite's father-in-law. They are married, and, and the first thing that I see right away in this story as an indication of where Israel is at spiritually is the fact that this wife is not called a wife proper, but she is called a concubine. If you want to keep a few notes, first of all, as we look at the Levite and his concubine, we see that there was an unholy view of marriage in this culture. What's the difference between a concubine versus a wife? Well, a wife indicates a certain certain level of respect, I think is the best way to put it. That this man viewed that when you when, when a man called this the woman his wife. He's viewing her as his completer, as his, as his equal, someone given to him by God, not just to serve him physically, but to complete him in every single way. A concubine, on the other hand, had a different connotation. Of course, we think of, of King Solomon. He's the worst example of this in Scripture. He had, remember, 300 Wives, or I always get it backwards. 300 wives, 700 concubines, I think it is. It might be the other way around. I don't know why I always get those flipped. Probably because I don't like to think about it much. What's the difference between a wife and a concubine? Well, a wife is an equal. A concubine exists just to serve the man. And here, this, this woman is called concubine. And it is absolutely true. You look throughout history that one of the first indications that a nation has gone away from the truth of God's word is how that, how that people views marriage. Where are we at in our culture today? Marriage, as God defines it, has been utterly and totally rejected. Not only does our culture call things marriage that God calls an abomination, in our culture, marriage in general is increasingly viewed negatively. The number of people who are opting not to marry at all, but just to maybe live together or live as a single person having however many romantic relationships they want, is, is increasing at a staggering rate. Here's one statistic that I found. Um, says one, uh, the share of U.S. adults who are currently married has declined modestly in recent decades from 58% in 1995 to 53%. So not a large drop in who are married, but over the same period, the share of adults who are living with an unmarried partner has risen from 3 to 7%. So that's more than doubled. While the share who are currently cohabitating remains smaller than the share who married, the share of adults ages 18 to 44 who have ever lived with an unmarried partner is 59%. And that is more than the share that has ever been married, which is only 50%. So in other words, if you took everyone in America aged 18 to 44 and you polled them, have you ever been married versus have you ever lived with someone? 59%, almost 6 out of 10 would say, yeah, I've lived with someone. 
but only half have said, I've been married. You see the problem? We have an unholy view of marriage in our culture. But then we see with this, and this is just an extension of the unholy view of marriage, we see the unfaithfulness to marriage by what this lady did. She was unfaithful to her husband. She left him, she was unfaithful to him, and she went back to her father's house. We look at our culture today and marital fidelity is not promoted by and large in our culture. The idea of vowing faithfulness to someone forever is mocked, literally mocked in our culture today. One man, one woman, one lifetime is seen as a ridiculous notion. According to many studies, at least 20% of America's population has admitted the guilt of adultery. One out of five adults has admitted it. Kind of makes you wonder how many are actually guilty. Why? Because we have a very unholy view of marriage and that leads to a very unfaithful, an unfaithfulness in marriage. That's what the culture was here in Israel. So this man goes to get his wife back. And I say good for him, what he did. He went to speak friendly to her. He, he was trying to, trying to win her back. And she, he ends up at his father-in-law's house where she's been sheltered, where she's been staying. And there's this period of time, about five days, in which the man's trying to leave, but the father-in-law keeps saying, no, I want you to stay a little longer. And that leads up to the final day when he finally leaves later in the day to head out. And this sets up the remainder of this story that gets worse and worse. Verse 11. When they were by Jebus, the day was far spent, and the servant said unto his master, Come, I pray thee, and let us turn in to this city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. And he said unto unto him, We will not turn aside hither into the city of a stranger. That is not of the children of Israel. We will pass over to Gibeah. And he said unto his servant, Come, and let us draw near to one of those places to lodge all night in Gibeah or in Ramah. And they passed on and went their, went their way, and the sun went down upon them when they were by Gibeah, which belongeth to Benjamin. And they turned aside thither to go in and to lodge in Gibeah. And when he went in, he sat him down in a street of the city, for there was no man that took him into his house to lodging. And behold, there came an old man from his work out of the field at even, which was also of Mount Ephraim, and he sojourned at Gibeah. But the men of the place were Benjamites. And when he had lift up his eyes, he saw a wayfaring man in the street of the city. And the old man said, Whither goest thou? Whence comest thou? And he said unto him, We are passing from Bethlehem Judah toward the side of Mount Ephraim. From thence am I. And I went to Bethlehem Judah, but I am now going to the house of the Lord. There is no man that receiveth me to the house. Yet there is both straw and provender for our asses. There is bread and wine also for me and for thy handmaid, for thy young man, which is uh, thy servants. There is no want of anything. And the old man said, Peace be with thee. Howsoever, let all thy wants lie upon me, only lodge not in the street. So he brought him into his house and gave provender unto the asses, and they washed their feet and did eat and drink. So pause here for just a second uh, to catch up where we're at in the story. They're traveling now late in the day, trying to get back home uh, to uh, Mount Ephraim where he lives. And eventually he's going to be going to the house of the Lord, uh, which was in Shiloh, uh, apparently for worship of some sort. But the sun's gone down. They need a place to stay at night. And so they were near the heathen city uh, of the Jebusites. And the servant suggested, well, let's go there. And the Levite said, no, let's not stay with strangers. Let's stay in Israel with one of the, in one of the Jewish cities. And so they came to Gibeah. 
They go into the city, and right away we know there's a problem. Nobody received them. Nobody opened their doors to them. Nobody was hospitable. Nobody said, hey, don't stay on the street tonight. Come on in, I've got a place for you. They didn't have Holiday Inn Express. They didn't have those kinds of things. They were dependent on the hospitality of others. But nobody would open their home to them. And so as they're sitting on the street, an elderly gentleman who's been working out in the field comes in. He's not a citizen of Gibeah. He's a citizen of Mount Ephraim as well. But he's just staying in Gibeah a while while he's working. And he opens up his house to this Levite and his servant and the Levite's wife, the concubine. Verse 22. Now as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, certain sons of Belial beset the house round about and beat at the door and spake to the master of the house, the old man, saying, Bring forth the man that came into thy house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out unto them and said, Nay, my brethren, nay, I pray you, do not so wickedly, seeing that this man is come into mine house. Do not this folly. Behold, here is my daughter, a maiden, and his concubine. I will bring them out now and humble ye them and do with them what seemeth good unto you. But unto this man do not so vile a thing. But the men would not hearken to him, so they took, the man took his concubine and brought her forth unto them. Does this remind you of another Bible story? Sodom and Gomorrah? Remember back in Genesis chapter 19? God came to Abraham and said, The wickedness of the cities has come up before me. God told Abraham that he was going to go and judge the cities. They go down there and the angels come into the house of Lot. And what happens? The men of the city come and attack Lot's house and ask him to bring those men out to them. And, and what, is, what does Lot say? No, they've come to my house for protection. How about I send my daughters out instead? And what we just read here was almost a copy and paste from that. Only there's a big difference. Now... It's God's children that are doing it. How did we get this far? Because they forsook the Lord to follow idols. I'm not going to read the next portion right now, but let me just summarizing it, summarize it to say that the Levite sent his wife out the door. She was attacked and ultimately killed. You look at the culture of this city, and this scene looks just like a scene from Sodom and Gomorrah. You have the wicked desire of the men of the city. You have the wicked suggestion of the host and the Levite. No, let, us send, let me send my daughter and his concubine out. And we have the wicked actions that resulted in death. And you're thinking to yourself, surely this has got to be some heathen folk somewhere. No, this was God's people who had forsaken the Lord to follow idols. I want to skip down to verse number 30. And I want to conclude with the Levites' horrible response. I don't even feel comfortable reading what he did. But verse 30 says, And it was so that all that saw it said, there was no such deed done nor seen from the day that the children of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt unto this day. Consider of it. Take advice. Speak your minds. 
This Levite did a horrible thing as a, as a way of getting the attention of the nation of Israel. And the one who was supposed to be the spiritual leader stooped to a grotesque display to prove a point. I mean, this guy was supposed to be, he's a Levite. He's supposed to be a spiritual leader. He's supposed to set the spiritual temperature. He's supposed to teach people the truth of the Word of God. I think about where we're at in our world today. And there are denominations who are splitting because part of them want to recognize and promote what God calls an abomination. Some of them, thankfully, even though I don't agree with many points of doctrine, at least some of them in those denominations are saying, no, in this point we're going to stay true to this fact of Scripture. Marriage is between one man and one woman. You have whole denominations that are splitting over this. And so you have people who are putting themselves forward as spiritual leaders that are saying, no, these things are okay. And they're couching it in such flowery languages. God is a God of love and love is what matters and love is what wins and we just need to love people. I'm telling you, if we allow people to destroy their lives without speaking the truth, we're not loving them. That's not love. That's not love. What, what, do we, what do we take away from a story like this? Well, here's just a few thoughts as we close. First of all, we need to recognize the culture for what it is. We live in a God-rejecting, man-worshiping culture that is plunging headlong toward filth and ultimately destruction and death. It's just what it is. So we ought not be surprised when we see the most wicked things being promoted by our culture. We need to recognize it for what it is. It is a culture of death. It is a culture of debauchery. It is a wicked, godless, idolatrous culture. Number two, we need to not only recognize the culture for what it is, We need to refuse to follow the culture. We need to refuse to follow the culture. I understand that many people think the truth of the Bible as we believe it is old-fashioned. I understand that. By the way, I don't have a problem with it. Say, well, you know, times have changed. Yes, they have, and not for the better. You see, the, the, the Word of God is not out of date. The Word of God is timeless. There is no expiration date on the truth of Scripture. And we need to take a stand and refuse to follow the culture. Say, we are not going to allow them to pull us in that direction. Not a single inch. We are going to stay true to the Word of God. We're not going to give in to their demands. We're not going to affirm things that they say are good and right when God says they're 
evil and they're wrong. We're not going to follow that culture. Instead, we are going to immerse ourselves in the truth of God's word. We're going to be influenced by the Holy Spirit through the Holy Scriptures and we're going to surround ourselves with the saints of God so that together we can stand for the truth. For too long, the church in America has followed the culture wherever the culture was going. And we need to take a stand and say, this is what God says. It's always been true. It's just as true today as it was when God first said it. We're not changing. And then number three, we need to realize that the solution is to spread the truth. We don't stoop to the world's level to try and win points with shock value. And we don't stoop to using their tactics and adopting their godless language. We're not going to let them co-opt our language and tell us how we need to speak and, and what we can and cannot say. We're going to spread the truth of the gospel and of the word of God. And we're going to do it without apology. We're not going to say, well, I'm sorry, but... No, we're not sorry. We're not sorry for what God says. We're going to stand for the truth. And in love, we're going to say, thus saith the Lord. And here's the truth that the world needs to hear. There is one God. And thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. Because anything less than that leads to Romans 1 and Judges 19 and what we see parading on the streets of America today. God help us to stand for the truth and to worship God and God alone. With heads bowed and eyes closed, This has not been an easy message for me, I know, and I can imagine that for you it hasn't been easy to sit through and listen. I've tried to be careful. But I know that ultimately it's nothing I can say or do. It's God working in our hearts through His Word that will make the difference. And for an invitation tonight, I want to invite you to take a moment and instead of looking out there and diagnosing all the problems of the people that we see around us and what they're doing, I want to invite you to take a moment to look into the mirror of God's Word and ask yourself this honest question, am I worshiping God and God alone? Or have I allowed idols to take God's place in my heart? Am I truly giving God my all, my best? Or am I just giving Him part while I give my utter devotion truly to something else? I am, I am not exaggerating when I say to you, that when we put anything else in God's place on the throne of our heart, we're guilty of idolatry 
And if not repented of, it will lead to destruction and death 